in uh, 1947, there was a song performed by Lonzo and Oscar. Anybody know that name? You know the name? How do you know, Dave? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Lonzo and Oscar. And it was entitled, I'm My Own Grandpa. Really? Okay. <clears throat> anyway, in the song, it seems a man married an older woman, a widow. And this widow had an adult daughter. Are you with me? who subsequently married the man's father. Yeah, okay. And it turned into this tangled, complicated mess of relationships. I actually looked this song up. They actually created charts just to follow this song, okay? (laughs) Anyway, the song goes like this. It starts out, I'm not not singing it, but it's, no, 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 no. But it, it starts out pretty docile. Okay, I'm with you, I'm tracking. But yeah, it goes, it just spirals out of control. Anyway, Here it goes. Now, many, many years ago, when I was 23, I was married to a widow who was pretty as could be. This widow had a grown-up daughter. She had hair of red. My father fell in love with her, and soon the two were wed. This is where it spirals out of control now. Okay. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. My daughter was my mother because she's my father's wife. To complicate the matters, if it's not complicated enough already, to complicate the matters, even though it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad, and so became my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if he was my uncle, that also made him the brother of the widow's grown-up daughter, who, of course, was my stepmother. My father's wife then had a son that kept them on the run. And he became my grandchild, for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother. And it makes me blue because she is my wife. She's my grandmother too. (laughs) Now if my wife is my grandmother then, I am her grandchild. And every time I think of it, it nearly drives me wild. For now, I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As husband of my grandmother, I'm my own grandpa. It's crazy. I wonder how Ancestry.com would deal with that one. 
You know, in recent years, there has been a, a surge in the interest of genealogy. There are numerous books and, and, and search engines on the, on the internet that people can use to trace their lineage. And then there are companies who will do it for you. Searching your ancestry from all over the world. People want to know where they came from. But that was not a problem for the Jews in the first century. Every Jew who cared to know, and they cared to know, could learn exactly who their ancestors were for all of this information was carefully recorded and maintained in the temple at Jerusalem. All of it. Genealogy was very important to the Jews, and here are a few reasons why. It had a bearing on where one could live. If you remember, I'll put up the map there. If you remember, each Jewish tribe had received an inheritance of property in the promised land. Remember that? And for a Jew to purchase or inherit property in a particular area, they had to prove by lineage, that they descended from that particular tribe. Genealogy was also essential in proving whether a Jewish male could serve as a priest. Only men from the tribe of Levi could serve as a priest. And this connection was proved through genealogy. And then most importantly, genealogy was vital in identifying the royal line of kings. More specifically, the Messiah. The Old Testament made it clear that the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah. From the tribe of Judah, from the line of King David. Therefore, records of this lineage were essential in proving a royal connection to the throne. And if this connection could not be made through the records, then there was no use of going on any further. It stops right there. As you can see, genealogy was very important to the Jews, especially when it came to royalty. And that's why Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus to prove to the Jews. That's who this is written for. To the Jews that Jesus is legally in the royal line for the throne and is their promised king. So, with that said, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1. And we are going to work through a section 
we often skip, I'm guilty, we are going to work our way through a section that we often skip in our Bible reading. It's the boring stuff. Okay? It's the boring stuff. It's the list of names that we routinely pass over. And yet, it's the list of names the Jews could not ignore. Matthew tells us in verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let's stop right there. Because something unusual is presented to us by Matthew. And let me explain. When it comes to genealogies, especially for a Jew, they consistently begin with the earliest ancestor because a Jew considered that person to be the most significant since everyone else came from them. Right? But in this genealogy, it begins... With Jesus. It begins with Jesus, the final descendant in the lineage, implying that Jesus is more important than all who came before him. In this verse, Matthew makes an amazing claim. Revealing how Jesus, this carpenter from the backwoods, fulfilled the Old Testament criteria for the throne. If you notice, he drops the name of Abraham. And back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be given the land of Israel. And through his bloodline would come forth someone who would bless all the nations of the earth. So Abraham became the founding father of the Jewish nation. And then centuries later... Recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David and swore, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So only an heir Only an heir from the bloodline of David would have the right to reign as the king. Are you with me? Now before we dive headlong into the deep end of this ancestral pool, I need to say a few things about how Matthew organizes this record. He doesn't just present us with a list of ancestors in chronological order, but rather he divides it into clusters. Into clusters. First, from Abraham to David. Secondly, from David to the Babylonian captivity. And lastly, from the Babylonian captivity to Jesus. Then, within each cluster, 
Matthew selects 14 generations. And here, listen, this might throw you, intentionally leaving out some of the lesser known ancestors, and I'll explain that later, okay? Intentionally leaving out some of the lesser known ancestors, but surprisingly including a few women, which was not normal in Jewish genealogy. And even more surprising, most of these women were Gentiles. I just wanted to point that out. And with that, beginning with verse 2, we are told <clears throat> Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Faris and Zerah by Tamar. Faris was the father of Hezrom, and Hezrom the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salom. Salom was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. Okay. This is the end of the first cluster. And I want to point a few things out. First, on a, on a technical note, okay? On a technical note. In this record, you see the words over and over again, the father of. You see that? The father of. Or in other translations, like the King James... It is the word begat, over and over again. But in the Greek, it has two meanings. Okay, In the Greek, it has two meanings. It can mean the physical father of, as in the literal father, okay? But it can also mean the ancestor of, Okay? The father of or the ancestor of. And I bring this up because Matthew skips over several lesser known individuals and yet still maintains the connection of this legal succession by the way of the more popular individuals who are, in fact, ancestors. Okay? Hopefully you got that. So in this first cluster, it represents the period that included the patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac. And if you recall that story... Abraham and his wife Sarah did not get pregnant with this promised child named Isaac until Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Then there is Jacob, who is also or later known as Israel. 
and Judah. And from that tribe, the tribe of Judah, the line of kings was to come. Now, this is also the period that spanned the time of bondage in Egypt. It covers the exodus under Moses, the giving of the law, and the conquest of the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. These were important historical events for the Jews. Great reference points. But Matthew, Matthew does not focus on them. Instead, he mentions, for example, that Judah was the father of Faris. And Zerah by Tamar, which is one of those embarrassing skeleton in the closet stories. Anybody know that story? There was a very prominent family who commissioned a professional biographer to record their family tree. They gave him very detailed instructions and cautioned him to deal very carefully with a certain Uncle George who in a drunken stupor had committed murder and was later executed in the electric chair. He was an embarrassment to the family. And the biographer assured them that he could handle it. And this is what he wrote. Uncle George occupied a chair of applied electronics at an important government institution. (laughs) He was attached to his position by the strongest of ties, and his death came as a real shock. (laughs) Well, Matthew is not as creative and elusive as this biographer. And he lets the skeleton right out of the closet by mentioning Tamar and her twins. Tamar was a Canaanite woman. A Canaanite. Who married Judah's Firstborn son named Ur. E-R. Ur. Ur was evil in the sight of God, so God took his life, leaving Tamar a widow and childless. You with me? Well, as I said earlier, Lineage was very important to the Jews. So according to the Mosaic law, the brother next in line was supposed to take the widow for himself so that she might have children and carry on the lineage for the deceased brother. So, the second son named Onan, marries Tamar. But Onan did not fulfill his husbandly responsibilities. So God took him too. Well, Judah, 
the father-in-law of Tamar, tells her that he has one more son named Selah. But he's just a boy. And she needs to wait in her father's house until he becomes a man. And then Selah will perform his responsibility to ensure the family line continues. Years go by. Selah grows up. But Judah does not keep his promise to Tamar. It would seem that Judah planned to leave her a widow and childless. And she becomes desperate. Judah had lost his wife. And after a while, Tamar learned of the road that he normally took on his way out to the fields. So she dressed up like a prostitute covered her face with a veil, and she waited on the side of the road. Sure enough, Judah walks by, but he doesn't recognize Tamar. And he propositions her. She's game. And they negotiate payment, which was a goat. But go figure, Judah didn't have a goat with him. So Tamar says, that's okay, tiger. I will take your ring, your cord, which was a small engraved hollow clay cylinder carried on a cord around the neck. And I'll take your walking staff as a pledge for payment. And after we are done having fun, you can bring me my goat and I will return your property. So Judah spends some quality time with Tamar, who he still does not recognize. And when the goat is later sent to her for payment, she's nowhere to be found. Poof, gone. Well, Tamar becomes pregnant with twins. And after three months, word gets back to Judah that Tamar has been sleeping around. And Judah wants to have her burned at the stake. Judah does not care for Tamar. He's already lost two sons in marriage to her. So he's ready to pass judgment. They go get Tamar and bring her back before Judah. And then she tells Judah, you can burn me. But the father of my children who owns this ring, this cord, and this walking staff is just as guilty as I am. Of course, Judah recognizes his property. And he also recognizes he's the real problem. He's the problem because he did not keep his promise to Tamar. That's just one story in the genealogy of Jesus that would not end in a Jewish record. 
It would not be there. Now, if time permitted, we could look at Rahab, who was another Canaanite woman. If you recall, she was a real prostitute who lived in Jericho, and she helped to hide two spies sent by Joshua to scope out the city before Israel came that way. She and her family were spared, if you recall, when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Then you have Ruth, a Moabite, who stuck with her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. You know that story well. And once again, she would have never made it into any other Jewish genealogy record. I imagine the Jews, after reading all of this, would stand back and scratch their heads and ask, What's Matthew's problem by adding all these women into the genealogy record? Nonetheless, foreign women. They're not even Jewish. So that's the first cluster. And now we move on to the second one. Beginning with the second part of verse 6. Matthew tells us, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abiah and Abiah the father of Asha. Asha was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham, Jotham excuse me, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Okay, we'll stop there. So in this second cluster... I counted seven good kings and seven bad kings. Seven good kings and seven bad kings. And need I remind you that this is the genealogy of Jesus. Now if you notice, Matthew includes some major figures in this record, such as Solomon, who built the temple in Jerusalem. And he also mentioned, surprisingly, the sin of David, who committed, if you recall, adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband, Uriah, by ensuring he was sent to the front line of the battle without any support. Matthew also includes Rehoboam, who, because of his pride and his lust for power, was responsible for dividing the promised land into two kingdoms. The north called Israel and the south called Judah. 
Another standout who you may not know is Manasseh, who had the longest reign of all the kings of Judah. Fifty-five years. Fifty-five years as king. And yet, he was the most wicked king they ever had. Even worse than Ahab, if that's possible. He was into idolatry. He sacrificed his own son to the pagan god Moloch. He worshipped the sun and the stars and he killed anyone who disagreed with him. Later, Manasseh was carried away in chains to Babylon. Carried away to Babylon and in his prison cell, he humbled himself. He prayed to God and he repented. God extended grace to Manasseh and returned him back to Jerusalem where he made some very important reforms. Now it does not seem that Manasseh had any influence over his evil son, Ammon. But, he may have been a godly influence over his grandson, Josiah, who was later a good king. Now, Jeconiah, who is also called Coniah, creates an interesting problem in the genealogy record. Okay? And let me explain. Back in Jeremiah chapter 22, let me just share this with you. Back in Jeremiah 22, God cursed this evil king and said, listen to this, that none of his descendants, none of them, would ever sit on the throne of David. Well, if that's the case, if that's the case, then how could Jesus be the king when Joseph was in this bloodline and under this curse. Well, there are two answers. First, Joseph was only the legal father of Jesus. The legal father not the actual father. And secondly, Jesus gets his rights to the throne of David, not by Joseph, but through Mary, whose genealogy is given by Luke. In Luke's record, after King David, the bloodline came to Mary from Nathan, Solomon's brother, not Solomon. Not Solomon thereby bypassing this curse against Jeconiah and his descendants. You with me? Okay. As I said earlier, we, we can't pick our family. But Jesus did. 
before the foundation of the world. And thus far in this legal record from Matthew, Jesus came into this world from a people that most of us would want to do nothing with. Many of them we would call failures. Many of them we would call wicked. But if the truth be told, they are no different from us. And that's why God did not give up and why Jesus came. Okay. Let's look at this last cluster, beginning with verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim and Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Ahim. And Ahim, the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mothan. And Mothan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. This third cluster represents 500 years, most of which occurred between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The 400 years of silence. And therefore, we hardly know the people named here. Yes, we can read about Zerubbabel, who was appointed by the Persians, to return to Jerusalem to supervise the rebuilding of the temple. And of course we know about Joseph, who was the legal father of Joseph, of Jesus. But as for the rest, we know very little, if anything. Matthew does not tell us how he obtained these names. But I think it's probably safe to assume somehow he had access to the genealogical records. Now speaking of Joseph, if you notice, Matthew does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. Do you see that? That's the exception. He does not say Joseph was the father of Jesus because he is not. Joseph is only known here as the husband of Mary. That's it. It was Mary, a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit by whom Jesus was born. Okay, let's move to our last verse. Verse 17. Where Matthew sums it all up and he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Generations. This morning, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. It's the, we'll call it the legal record. 
Okay? It's the legal record. The record the Jews would have acknowledged and honored. Okay? And it reminds me of a saying that goes like this. Families are like fudge. Mostly sweet with a few nuts. In the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew reveals that redemption in the person of Jesus Christ made its way to us through a long list of sinners. Some well-known, some completely unknown. But all except for Jesus were sinners. It tells us that God uses the failures and the flawed. And it tells us that His grace is great. And if the people in this record could be included in the Lord's story, if these people could be included in the Lord's story, then people like you and me can be added to His story as well. No matter your past, a murderer, a prostitute, an adulterer, a liar, a cheater, an idolater, a thief, you name it, no matter what you have done, the record reveals that in His amazing grace. Jesus can save you. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this time in this, in this record. I hope I did not butcher the names. Lord, I pray that it was pleasing to you. And most of all, Father, I just pray I pray that it sinks in that you love people just like us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the redemption and the salvation you provide. Thank you for this family tree of sinners. Thank you, Lord, for including us in it. Father, may you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> You know, when we think of Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Messiah, we might think He comes through a long list of saints, right? This long list of saints. But as the record reveals, nothing could be further from the truth. It's a long list of sinners who needed salvation. Even the good kings like King David. Like King David. 
Matthew points out he was an adulterer and a murderer. And he's a good king. Matthew points that out for us. And I'm so thankful. If God could include people like that, surely he could add someone like me and someone like you. Am I right? Absolutely. Absolutely. God loves us more than we could ever know. That's why God did not give up on us, and that's why he sent Jesus to us. So that we might know his love and be saved. Now maybe you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Oh please, I just I, I would just I beg you that you would give me an opportunity to share him with you. He loves you more than you could ever know. Than you could ever know. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here. We're just like the list that you, we just covered. We're just like the people on that list. You'll fit right in. Trust me. You'll fit right in. Or maybe you just need prayer. There's something going on. There's a burden. I would love to pray with you. If not now, later. But however the Lord leads you this morning... I just pray to be obedient to Him and just respond. I feel like sometimes there might be some who sit out there and as I'm talking, even now, even now, there's this tug of war you feel it. There's this tug of war that's going on inside right now. Right? You got the enemy pulling on one side. Don't respond. Don't obey. Don't respond. This is foolishness. This is craziness. And the other side, you better listen. You better listen. However the Lord moves you. I just ask you to respond to him. Be obedient. Larry?